0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you might have noticed that we're really into the history of gender. Why? Well, it's a good place to start dismantling a lot of the nonsense we were all taught about sex and history. Not just because it's sadly still relevant in a society that weaponizes false assumptions about the past to push for a future based on nostalgic nonsense but because i enjoy it <laughs> now a lot of people still push the narrative that people throughout history have always adhered to a strict gender binary with clear-cut gender roles and that nobody ever stepped outside of it or god forbid was born outside of it until the nasty feminists got jobs in the 1960s and ruined everything with their pantsuits and birth control pills it's bullshit The real history of gender is more complicated and far more interesting. We've talked about this with some great guests this year, and this week we're continuing that conversation with Dr. Anne Linton, author of the groundbreaking new book, Unmaking Sex, The Gender Outlaws of 19th Century France. Now, we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, everything from marriage laws and medical erotica to popular fiction and permits for pants. It's a fascinating interview, and I hope you enjoy it. So here's my talk with Dr. Ann (music) Linton. All right, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Anne Linton, author of the new book, Unmaking Sex, The Gender Outlaws of 19th Century France, which is out now from Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you. This book absolutely blew my mind. It is so good. So to start with, this title is so fascinating to me. And I have to ask, What did it mean to be a gender outlaw in 19th century France?
1: That is a great question. Um, I'm afraid I can't take credit for the title of the book, uh, which was a decision of the press, actually. But, you know, in my book, gender outlaw references the ways that intersex people and their bodies challenged ideas about binary sex in 19th century France. So the term gender outlaw is, of course, an allusion to Kate Bornstein's pathbreaking book from 1994, so it pays homage to Bornstein without suggesting that historical figures were working out their gender in the same and ever-changing ways uh, that we are today. Chapter two of the book really explores moments when historical intersex people came into conflict with the French Civil Code, which is a more literal meaning of the term gender outlaw. French law required that binary sex be recorded on the birth certificate within three days of birth. And whether one was assigned female or male determined what kind of jobs one could have, how much one would be paid for them, and even whom one could marry. And so, you know, one key aspect of unmaking sex that is reflected, I think, by the title and by the term gender outlaw is the fact that um, my book is really about people born with intersex traits rather than just ideas about non-binary sex. And this was really important to me when I was writing the book. So even though the medical rec- record privileges the doctor's voice, it, it also provides glimpses of the choices made by historical intersex people. And so I try to attend to their stories and their voices whenever possible in the book, you know, given the limitations of the historical record, which you know, are many. Obviously, hercunin Baban is the central figure here, but I also try to show moments, however fleeting in the historical record, when we can see how historical figures thought about their own gender, um, and at times their sense of self is really sharply resistant to medical interventions, and at times these individuals actually cause their doctors um, to change their thinking about the binary, which is something that I find really powerful and really fascinating.
0: That's incredible. Um, I can't imagine what that experience must have been like for these people. Can you tell us any more about what their daily lives were like?
1: Um, well, I think I think really Ercunine Barban is the best example um to talk about um the lived experience of historical intersex people because that's really Ercunine Barbant is, you know, the author of the only known memoir written by an intersex person from 19th century France. So that's really the only first person account that gives us access to, to a certain extent to like the hopes and the triumphs and the aspirations, but also like the daily experiences of an intersex person from, from the time period. The medical record um, is just gonna provide us with small moments um, of interaction between um, between patients and, and their doctors. Um, so, you know, Ercudine barbant's memoirs are really crucial um, but they're also not completely unmediated um Ambroise uh, Tardieu the doctor who published them only published the part that he found the most interesting um and so the excised sections of Bauban's memoirs had have been lost today and i've often wondered how they would be different if we had the full story. And I sort of suspect that they would be <laughs> very different, you know, if we didn't have Tardieu as as a narrator in some ways.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a shame that we're missing so much of it. So uh, now, of course, you you do mention Hercule and Baban quite a lot in the book. So what can you tell us about their life?
1: Um, Baban was an extraordinary individual um, who was extremely well-educated and who was also a teacher. Um, barban was born in 1836 and assigned female consistent with that French law that I mentioned above, but extreme abdominal pain led to a series of invasive medical examinations that uncovered an intersex variation much later in life, and that ultimately led to a legal sex revision. So barban's birth record was then amended to read male and barban's name was changed on that record. At first, there's some optimism in the memoirs that Barban will succeed in the capital with a fresh start. But because Barban has now legally changed sexes, it became impossible to cite any of their past work experience, um, which left Barban really qualified for only low paid and labor intensive work. Mm-hmm. And Barban also describes feeling extremely isolated, um, separated from family, friends. Um, And Sarah, uh, who was Barban's lover. So very rapidly, at least in the version of the memoirs that survives. And we don't know how much was cut out. You know, we, we have, we have no idea what Tardieu, he he says, he truncates the memoirs and says, uh, this is, this is where the really interesting part ends, but we don't know how much else he took out. So in this version of the memoirs, um, very quickly after arriving in Paris, um, Barban descends into despair and destitution um, and tragically commits suicide um, in 1868, at which point the complete memoirs were found by doctors from the state registry office, um, and the intersex variation was uncovered completely inadvertently. So the memoirs really reveal in the most heartbreaking way possible what a legal sex revision actually meant to the people who were forced into them. And so the position taken by Morgan Holmes or Hida Valoria or many of the other intersex scholars and activists who read Balbin's story and who consider it as one of an ancestor is really that Baobin was forced into this legal sex revision. And so... Um, the work of these contemporary scholars and activists helps us to see parallels between medical interventions in the 19th century and the so-called medical management of intersex in the 20th century through to the present, in which intersex babies and children are subjected to what are predominantly unnecessary medical interventions that have caused really enduring physical and psychological trauma. So my book shows that Acunine Bourbonne wasn't alone. Um, even though the memoirs are the only precious first-person account, there were hundreds more like Baobang because intersex folks have always been here. Even And even if the historical record has left their stories to us really incomplete and sort of problematically viewed from the outside, they still have important things to teach us.
0: Yes, absolutely. And of course, uh, we talked about some of the the more well, relatively modern treatments with our our interview with Sandra Ader as well. Um, And that was uh, another fascinating discussion. Gosh, there's so much to get into here. So I wanted to ask you as well, uh, you have the account of the marriage between Mademoiselle de Campos and Count San Antonio, and this reminded me of some of the legal disputes that were mentioned in Jen Mannion's fantastic book, Female Husbands, which of course we've talked about on this show. So what challenges did intersex people face when it came to marriage? Female Husbands is such a phenomenal book. I'm so glad you mentioned it. Um.
1: Jen and I have talked about this some, and of course, we're looking at different time periods and different geographic regions. Um, Jen is focusing on 18th century Anglophone texts, and I'm working on 19th century Francophone texts. But one similarity, though, is the power that the wives of female husbands had over their husbands, um, whom they could denounce as having been assigned female at any point, which would garner uh, public sympathy. Um, And it's true in my work, that most of the legal disputes arose because one spouse claimed the other's intersex variation should give them grounds for divorce or, you know, to separate when divorce was illegal. But one key difference is that France had no laws on the books about intersex. Um, And the definition of marriage itself in France was about companionship and mutual support. And so it wasn't predicated on reproductive ability. The Napoleonic Code that was in place since you know since 1804 did away with infertility or bodily variations as grounds for divorce. And so this meant that the only guaranteed way to end a marriage would be to prove that the people married were both of the same sex. And so you can see Ambroise Tardieu, the one who published uh, Bauban's memoir, um, you can see him really strain to demonstrate sexual identity in in some famous cases. In England or Germany, By contrast, at at the same time, if one of the spouses had a bodily variation that would interfere with what was seen as the reproductive imperative of marriage, then that marriage could be ended. So... French jurisconsults had to come up with another solution. Um, sexual identity was one strategy. Um, some also wanted to add a third category for sex alongside those of male and female. Um, and that category would be a means of excluding those who fell into it from civil and legal, right? So not at all progressive. Um, or they argued that another overlooked clause in the code could be interpreted in sort of the broadest sense to include certain bodily variations. Um, Another challenge that intersex people sometimes faced um, legally, if they had transgenders away from the sex assigned at birth, was the obstacle that their birth sex was identified on their birth certificate. It would need to be produced in order to marry. And so this is what happened with uh, Joseph Marzou. So there's a huge amount of anxiety on the part of doctors at the time about what were seen as same-sex marriages, not just because of heteronormativity, but also because of the natality crisis in France at that time. Nevertheless, you know, doctors often record in their cases that couples were happy and they weren't interested in undergoing a legal sex revision or in having the marriage dissolved. And the doctors really mostly just seem to accept this fact, um, which is really interesting.
0: That is really interesting. So much of this was not what I expected. There were so many amazing surprises. Um, and in fact, another one I wanted to ask you about, you have some beautiful 18th century engravings in this book from Jean Moreau's 1773 collection. And I've never come across these before. These are these beautiful pictures of, of intersex people. Uh, what was Moreau's study and how did this come about?
1: Um, yeah, so that those are really interesting. Those are from the Wellcome collection um, in, in London. Those engravings reflect some points of continuity with the 19th century and some points of rupture. Um, one difference is that even though Louis Enou, who's one of the one of the individuals um, depicted, even though he's described as having a complete male and female reproductive system, he's nevertheless labeled in the drawing as a boy hermaphrodite. So he's assigned um, a true sex. That's the title of the. Uh, of the drawing. So he's assigned a true sex, even though his body is non-binary. Um, by the 19th century, um, so just a few years later, doctors already knew that no human could have a complete female and male reproductive system. That was that didn't exist at all. Nevertheless, there were some doctors and scientists like Isidore geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, who defined what was then termed hermaphrodism, Broadly, as the coexistence in the same individual of both sex or some of their attributes, and so the the drawings also reveal how cultural and sexual fantasies about androgyny cathect on intersex bodies, which is just one of the reasons I chose not to include photography in the book. Um, The engravings sort of introduce an uneasy juxtaposition between medicine and eroticism that's latent in many medical narratives and literary accounts. There are these, like in the drawings, there are these numbered and lettered body parts, which are meant to expurgate the the visual depictions by teaching us something um, and to offer visual proof for the claims that are made in the texts of the medical case. But at the same time, the poses are really borrowed from erotic art. Uh, Marie Auger is rendered, you know, as if surprised in a state of undress in bed, um, And so the images convey almost more about erotic imagination than they do about clinical observation. And that tension um, is one of of the tensions that I'm looking at in uh, medical and, and legal narratives in the book.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. So as we can assume that intersex people have always been approximately, I think you said 1.7% of the population. How did 19th century doctors suddenly become aware of them? How did they respond to this perceived increase in intersex people?
1: Uh, That's a great question. So there actually wasn't a sudden awareness. Um, There are cases going back to the earliest medical publications. Uh, Leah Devon recently wrote an extraordinary book about non-binary sex in the medieval period called The Shape of Sex, which is very good. But there were many factors that increased the visibility of intersex in 19th century France in particular. Many of them were tied to medicine. There was a shift to large hospitals and new specializations. There were rapidly increasing venues for medical publications. Um, The poor filling public hospitals raised awareness about all kinds of bodily variations, you know, whether they were rare or not. And the new journals meant that discoveries could be shared far and wide. So sometimes intersex variations were found completely inadvertently because of some kind of exam. There's a lot of VD in the 19th century, Yeah, Uh, but but also because, you know, there were massive epidemics. um, And so intersex variations were found, um, Inadvertently during autopsy, and then the cause of death would be listed as cholera, for example. Um, and I found a lot of cases that way. And so, one of the anxieties in the medical record that comes out of these inadvertent discoveries is that maybe intersex variations are not actually rare. Maybe there are many more people with intersex uh, traits than uh, has been previously than was previously suspected. In 1886, Doctor Paul bruardel personally examined six patients whose sex he alleged had been incorrectly assigned at birth. And so this kind of publication really fueled anxiety that there was a dense population of intersex people that posed a risk to French society and to French social order, usually because there were fears about the institution of marriage. Um, And so fears about the potentially widespread nature of intersex also challenged more restrictive definitions of what was then termed hermaphrodism.
0: So um, I'm glad that you mentioned the medical records, and I want to go ahead and uh, take a little bit of a left turn here because I want to get into the other part of your book, which I thought was so fantastic. So my degrees are in, in history, but then my, uh, my MA is in, um, well, creative writing. So I study a lot of literature as well. So if we only look at medical records from this time, we only get a fraction of the picture, as you mentioned. And what I loved so much about this book is that you also analyze literary sources from the time to fill in the rest. So what does the popular fiction from this time tell us about the public perception of androgyny? Uh, That's such a great question. Um, And I love that you have this background
1: in history and and literature as well. That's uh, wonderful. helps me understand where the questions are coming from <laughs> as well. That's great. Um, I think, you know, in the book, I argue that the popular fiction is really kind of a missing link between medical inquiries into intersex and the 19th century, um, in the 19th century, and then also canonical literature. Um, there's been this long-standing narrative in literary studies that the that fictional representations of androgyny have nothing to do with contemporary historical and medical accounts that, you know, they harken back to timeless myth. But if one looks at popular fiction in which doctors and medicine really do play important roles, it makes the connection to medicine much more explicit while at the same time challenging the way uh, that we might read some very well-known novels um, because it's clear that there are connections to medicine <laughs> and science uh, from the time. Novelists imagine fantastical excursions away from binary gender in their fiction. And just like the medical cases, they sometimes subvert the binary during the period in which it's believed to be the most entrenched. That there was so much public interest in androgyny is a reflection, I think, of the ways um, that sex and gender were under strain during the period, which made the, the question of intersex more poignant and more resonant and magnified its appeal to a much broader audience.
0: Gosh, and there are so many great examples too. you, you know, you have examples of intersex characters written by everybody from uh, Baudelaire to Balzac to Sand and Zola. Uh, So how did popular fiction challenge the perception of gender at this time?
1: Yeah, so there were all these canonical writers, like the ones you just mentioned, that explored androgyny in their fiction. Sometimes they even wrote entire works in which the sex or gender of the central character was non-binary and unknown, either to other characters or to readers. And so the unknown gender became a page-turning motor for plot in all of these novels. So these writers were really testing the limits of gendered embodiment in their fiction and pushing beyond the binary. Often there seems to be a return to heteronormativity at the end, um, usually through the death or departure of the non-normative character. But upon closer scrutiny, I argue that these novels really do challenge contemporary perceptions of gender, either by questioning the effectiveness or meaningfulness of sex assignments, as in Latouche's novel, or by showing us how gender can actually shift, as
0: in Théophile Gautier's novel, for example. So speaking of authors, George Sand herself was an androgynous icon, dressing as a man, although she identified as a woman. So was there space for non-binary identities in 19th century France? How common was it for women to dress as men?
1: That is a terrific and fascinating question, which is simultaneously really hard to answer because of differences in vocabulary between the ways we think about sex and gender today, and because also um, because of limitations of of the archives. Um, nevertheless, there is an increasing body of work on this very question, um, and there are some very prominent and well-known pants-wearing figures like Sand, um, whom you mentioned, and Rashild who sometimes secured the permit necessary for pants wearing and sometimes did not. Sante did not, um, and Rachel did. So my book seeks to contribute to the conversation by de-invisibilizing intersex and some of the gender transing uh, practices that had been obscured by more entrenched narratives about sex and gender in the 19th century. The biggest one of these narratives is Foucault's narrative about true sex in which um, that he lays out in the preface of Herculean Barban's memoirs. Basically, Foucault argues that doctors believed that there were only two sexes that might be difficult to discern in cases of intersex but they were absolutely there on the body and it was up to so-called experts to figure it out but what i try to show in the book is that that argument is very much an over oversimplification and so i'm trying to shift the focus away from to, true sex which you know by the way doctors don't determine a lot of, a lot of the time in these cases Um, And especially when one looks at medical case histories in which doctors came into contact with historical intersex people and where the theories were tested in the field, you know, during these clinical examinations, there were many challenges to binary definitions of sex. Some doctors even claimed that there was this third non-binary sex and that the civil code should be amended to reflect that. Um, So we have to be really aware of the limitations of historical sources, um, but these cases can also give us insight into the lives and experiences of a completely different set of individuals, right? So Sand and Rashid were really well-known white people who had the incredible privilege of elite educations um, and of being able to write not just literature, but also about themselves. But what were the experiences Of ordinary people or working class people or poor people or people of color or people who didn't leave their own writing. Um, These are the ones that end up in the public hospitals and who often appear in medical cases. And so it gives us a different perspective than we would have if we only considered first-person accounts. And I don't think one approach is superior to another. I think many avenues of approach can really give us a more complete picture of the past.
0: Um, And I think that's something we should all be interested in. And it is so interesting, but if I can circle back very briefly, did you say they had to apply for a permit to wear pants? That's right. Um, so they did and they didn't Right. the, the law
1: required, um, women who wanted to wear pants in 19th century France to secure a permit. Um, Otherwise, uh, they could uh, face repercussions. But Sand, who's obviously the most famous figure that you mentioned, didn't ever do this, whereas other people did. And the grounds for um, the pants wearing permit, if I recall, Correctly had to be, it was a medical exception. So um, people had to, individuals had to prove that they needed to wear pants for some uh for some medical reason or professional reason if, if skirts got in the way. Um, so um historians have tried to figure out how many people actually wore pants, how common this really was. But the, the records at the prefecture de police um in France are sort of idiosyncratic <laughs> and they don't tell us um overall how many people there were there are just certain accounts that that are recorded and so it's a question that remains largely uh unanswered
0: that's incredible my goodness imagine applying for a permit to wear pants and some of these things just jump out at me and i just love it so um okay i have to ask you what are your favorite novels out of all of those that you researched for this book i love so many of the novels I think the most famous one that still somehow really just
1: hasn't gotten enough attention for how fantastic it truly is um, would be Théophile Gautier's Mademoiselle de Maupin, which is a brilliant novel on so many levels. Um, It's not only incredibly fun to read and to teach, um, but it also really challenges everything you you thought you knew about the 19th century in it. Um, the main character, Théodore de Serran, has genders to live as a man. Um, but then uh, they repudiate binary gender at the end of the novel to proclaim themselves a member of an as-yet-unnamed third sex, which really echoes these legal, legal cases that I mentioned earlier. Um, and Seyran leaves both their male and their female lovers after spending half a night of passion with each of them. In terms of the not- quite so well-known novels uh, that I love. I love Clémentine, Orpheline, and Androgyne, which um, dates from 1820. So it's it's before that spate of really famous intersex novels by uh, novelists in the 1830s. Um, But it already contains a number of the same scenes that will be revisited in canonical fiction. Um, Clémentine, the, the hero of that novel is assigned female, like Gautier's protagonist, but unlike Serran, Clementine is born with an intersex variation. Clementine also, though, transes gender to access male privileges like sword fighting and travel to facilitate travel in the novel. Um, interestingly, Cuisson's novel, um, he, Cuisson is the, the author of Clementine Orpheline et Androgine. His novel was censored um, and Gautier's never was, even though Mademoiselle de Maupin is so much more risqué and vastly more erotic uh, than Cuisin's novel. Probably just because Gautier was so much cleverer in the way that he chose to structure and really write the novel. Interesting. He pulled it off. He got away with it, I think.
0: He did. <laughs> That's great. I well, will definitely add those to my TBR. That's great. And uh, and speaking of books, I had to ask about this. Now you briefly mentioned as well in the book, uh, medical erotica from this period. Now I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I have to ask, what exactly is medical erotica?
1: Yeah. So today, you know, we tend to think of literature and science as totally distinct and even diametrically opposed. But you know, the former is concerned with fiction; the latter, supposedly, with truth. Um, But the boundaries were really blurred in the 19th century. Um, The literary field of naturalism with authors such as Émile Zola repurposed literature as a means of scientific inquiry. And at the same time, there were these hybrid medical texts that borrowed narrative devices from fiction and even doctors who wrote medicalized fiction. And some of it is really dirty. Um, One example of this is Dr. Cofinon, who wrote a medicalized, eroticized version of Hercudine Barbant's memoirs, Um, and he really exaggerated and deformed the memoirs in order to sensationalize them and to play into fantasies and fears about intersex um, at the time. So in these novels, and certainly in Cofinon's novels, the form that's taken is kind of like a salacious and really poorly written novel um, but then at the end, there are these real historical case histories that are tacked on. Um, and that's sort of doing the same thing um, as uh, those images that we talked about, you know, they're just verifying and expurgating uh, the text that has preceded it by showing that this is like a true story. And it was all told in the name of science. So Sometimes, you know, authors would report the most prurient details uh, in Latin so that only educated men could read them. Um, but, you know, Vernon Rosario has shown, <laughs> has pointed out that this just made it easier for readers to skip ahead <laughs> to the really juicy parts. <laughs> um, the genre is sometimes called medical Libertine or the Roman de Meurs in French. Um, and they're often written by a real doctor writing on a under the pen name of another doctor. Sometimes they probably weren't written by a doctor at all. Dr. Cufinon was the pen name for Dr. Fouconnet, um, whom Alison Moore has argued has no medical qualifications, I mean, at least in France, um, unless Fouconnet is another pseudonym for another doctor whose name remains still unknown, um, or he's a doctor from outside of France. Uh, Cofinon also published a pseudoscientific treatise on hermaphrodism. So the separation between literature and medicine was really, uh, the water was really murky (laughs) at the time.
0: Gosh, I guess. Um, Do you think there's a modern equivalent, maybe like a sensational biopic or I don't know? Yeah, I don't really know. Um, I don't know
1: what made these doctors feel like they needed to write these novels exactly, but I sort of hope the genre has died.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds kind of horrible, actually. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So uh, you also talk a little bit about uh, the age of the gonads, which is an actual term. This is something that we've talked about with uh, with Sandra Ader as well. So, what was the age of the gonads? It's not just a fantastic band name, but what did it mean for people who fell outside the gender binary? Um.
1: Yeah, I love Sandra Ader's book, so I'm and your podcast on it. Um. So that's it's great. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um. The age of the gonads, um, it is a memorable name that was chosen, yes it is. It was chosen by Alice Drager um, in her important book from 1998, Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex, which is a really good book. Um, The downside of the name is that it's so very memorable that it's tended to be remembered at the expense of some of the much more nuanced and complicated history um, that Drager is actually uncovering in that book. Um, So during this period of time, the age of the gonads which Draeger situates roughly in the last quarter of the 19th century, um, doctors predominantly assigned sex based on the somatic nature of gonadal tissue. So to be labeled a true hermaphrodite would require microscopic analysis that revealed intermediary gonads. Um, And this definition was very restrictive And because exploratory abdominal surgery was really rare and generally only performed in life-threatening situations, it was usually only revealed during autopsies. So one consequence of the age of the gonads that Drager talks about is that it led to the practical eradication of intersex. Um, But actually, as Drager shows in her book, there there was also sometimes disagreement about which sex to assign, especially in living patients whose gonads weren't readily available for microscopic study. Um, And that doctors sometimes refused to enforce or chose to ignore the one body, one sex rule. Um, And so my book kind of builds on this complexity that's already there in Drager's book um, or the messiness that Sandra Eder talks about in the unpublished case notes from the 20th century by showing an increasingly complex picture picture of the factors that affected sex assignments. Um, And by trying to pick up the story much earlier, at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. And so by looking at this longer history, it's possible to see that there wasn't really one age of the gonads. Um, That idea had really been around um, from at least the end of the 18th century. And at the same time, there was a lot of resistance to this very restrictive definition of hermaphrodism uh, that the age of the gonads implied. Um,
0: And this resistance had been around for just as long. So that does complicate things. Now, in 19th century France, medicine tried to reinforce the natural distinctions between men and women. But if the differences are so natural, then why was that necessary?
1: You know, precisely. Um, So part of what I'm arguing is that, you know, these differences are not natural. Um, They were shaped by historical and cultural forces that really changed over time. And so, in that sense, I think my work is part of a recent wave of historical LGBTQIA scholarship that tries to denaturalize the binary by showing how sex and gender are unstable categories that have changed over time and that have not you know, simply always been with us. Um, there was incredible focus on anything that was perceived as a threat to binary gender during the period because it was under strain from all sides. Um, at the same time, there were these increasing venues of publication that we talked about And there were these new specializations and, you know, historians have showed how during this period, in particular, social and cultural changes were wreaking havoc on binary sex. And so as the argument goes... Precisely because there were these pressures, medicine sought to naturalize the biological differences between the sexes so as to reify male social domination and patriarchal institutions of power. But what might be surprising given this dominant narrative, but actually which isn't really surprising if you stop to think about it, is that when doctors came into contact with intersex bodies, their beliefs about binary sex were sometimes disrupted, um, and the legal efforts to modify the civil code to recognize a third sex are really interesting um, because what those doctors are suggesting is that there's something wrong with the law that needed correcting. Whereas 20th century doctors and psychologists like John Money, um, whom you know Sandra Eder uh, is is writing about. Um, they claimed that the bodies of intersex babies and children needed to be surgically and her- hormonally altered to better fit with societal beliefs about the re- differences between men and women. These 19th century doctors suggested that the legal system itself was out of step with scientific progress. So it wasn't the bodies, but the code uh, that needed amendment, You know, which isn't to say their efforts were progressive at all, but it's an important uh, distinction. So put differently, the 19th century just isn't a block of, you know, a monolithic block in which binary sex always won out over non-binary sex. It was a lot more complicated than that.
0: Right. It just wasn't that simple. And of course, um, you could tell, uh, especially through the literature, there was a lot of anxiety around this at the time, uh, which, you know, of course, I have to ask. How did Zola's Maxime reflect society's fear of intersex people? Did he really think that boarding school could make you gay or intersex?
1: Yeah, Zola, what to say about Zola. Um, Zola's naturalism was really influenced um, by theories of heredity and especially degenerate heredity, which was used as a really expansive, like used in a really expansive and tautological way um, to both characterize and diagnose all sorts of modern ills, um, from criminality and depopulation and homosexuality and mental illness and intersex. Um, so in the novel I talk about a lot in the book, La Cure, the character Maxime, his androgyny is linked to contemporary scientific beliefs about his mother's young age at the time of his birth, but also to his homosexual experiences during boarding school. And Zola sort of fulminates on the evils of boarding school. Every chance he gets, um, and when Maxime falls in lust with his stepmom Renee, the stories that they whisper to each other about what happened when they were in school really set the action in motion, so that their incest, their quote-unquote incest, becomes predetermined in the way of a tragic flaw in Zola's modern retelling of the Phaedrus myth. Um, Naomi Shore famously wrote that pensionnaire is just another way of saying lesbian in Zola's <laughs> in, in Zola's writing. There's a slippage um, between bodily sex variations and same-sex desire um, in Zola's work. That's a product of his his historical moment, um, and also of the science um, of his day. And so, um, you know, Zola himself is also. An incredibly complex and deeply flawed individual. He does a lot of fear-mongering about the blurring of sexual boundaries. And he's very clear that a woman's role is to be a good wife and to have many, many children. Um, but at the same time, he had this whole secret life and a second family. Um, and he also wrote the preface to the autobiographical memoirs of a, num- a young Italian, which were published as the Roman d'un inverti And in it, Zola suggests that both sex and sexuality might be innate. And so he links intersex and what was then termed inversion. Um, And sort of fabulously, the Italian author of those memoirs sent them to Zola. um, And in his letters to Zola, he said that La Cure was his favorite of Zola's novels, which I've always really adored because it suggests suggests to me that Zola's fiction wasn't quite as normalizing as he would have liked it to be. so I've
0: I've always really adored that detail. Absolutely. So why did intersex people start to make them so nervous? Is this like what we were seeing today, not, not just transphobia, but like complete ignorance or rejection of anything outside of the, the sort of typical binary?
1: I think there are strong parallels um, to today's transphobic legislation um, and a lack of awareness about the differences between intersex and trans issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the recent transphobic legislation and attacks um, are invested in a 19th century belief in true sex, this idea that the biological is somehow synonymous with the true or the real, that sex is binary and legible on the body. Um, but was, what was already becoming apparent in the 19th century was that new technology only revealed an increasingly complex picture of the science of sex and of sexual difference. So histology showed that gonads could be intermediary, for example. And this is kind of a similar message to the one being born out of debates over trans participation in sports, since it's now clear that there are many more variations, you know, hormonally or genetically among individuals within a single category than there are between the two sex categories. Um, And so this, I think, is why it can be important to think about how sex and gender were understood in the past, because if we come to realize that there was a lot of resistance to true sex in the 19th century, the period during which we were... We were taught to believe that it was the most entrenched, then it helps us to de invisibilize LGBTQIA ancestors and also to see how our own ideas about sex and gender are historically contingent um, and in flux. And how we understand gender is linked to bodily autonomy. It affects what's taught in schools, who can participate in sports, and the medical care that people will be able to access in the case of transgender kids or. Uh, choose to refuse in the case of intersex babies and their parents. My book also tells a story about how cultural and historical beliefs about sex in 19th century France influenced the medical care that intersex people received. And so that story about the very real consequences that ideas about sex and sexual difference can have on the lived experience of intersex and gender non-conforming people in the past is a parallel story to what's going on right now in terms of all of this uh, legislation uh, that's being passed in many states. And that's really the clear parallel with um, Emile Zola, because in that chapter um, where I look at degeneration theory, um, I show how it influenced medical and scientific writings. And at that time, doctors began to become suspicious that those born with bodily sex variations were also sexual deviants who suffered from mental illnesses and this was a very dark chapter in the history of intersex
0: yeah it's so tragic um and of course people don't appreciate how common intersex is i think you mentioned in the book that it's actually more common to be born intersex than to have um identical twins is that right That's one of the statistics that comes
1: out of the work by uh, intersex activists and scholars. Another one of the really frequently cited comparisons is that intersex variations are as common as having red hair. And so when you think about it, everybody knows uh, people who are born with intersex
0: variations, whether or not you know it, right? Whether or not you realize it. Everybody, right. Yeah, it's, it's so much more common than people think. So what can the 19th century debate teach us about the medical management of intersex today? Well, I think the first
1: and most important lesson is that intersex folks have always been here and they will always be here um, because intersex is just an umbrella term for a broad range of naturally occurring bodily variations. So the vocabulary is dynamic today as it was um, in the past, but the people are in many ways the same. Um, We've all heard of Herculean Barban, but there were so many more like Barban whose stories deserve to be seen and heard. One key difference between the 19th century, though, and our own time is this medical management of intersex. Intersex scholars and activists have been arguing since the 1990s that babies born with intersex traits should not be subjected to unnecessary medical interventions and This is really a difference because in 19th century France, the technological limitations meant that the bodies of babies and children were not being systematically altered to fit with cultural beliefs about what a boy or a girl should look like. Um, And so intersex in the 19th century was becoming increasingly visible because of all of the reasons that that we've already talked about, Um, whereas it was rendered increasingly invisible following uh, John Money's work at Hopkins. And I actually think that that invisibilization was a factor for the literary critics who were first trying to think about uh, literary representations of androgyny, um, that there was somehow a theoretical or a discursive limitation that prevented them from really taking the question of intersex embodiment seriously um, and from really seeing what these novels were doing um, and reading them in a way that they probably would have been read um, in a cultural in which intersex was much more visible as it was in 19th century France because of all of these novels, because of all of these uh, medical cases. So it's important to know that even in the 19th century, which is a time when we've been taught to believe that the concept of true sex solidified, that there were many challenges to this idea, cutting across multiple different discourses. And there were also these historical individuals with sex variant anatomies who sometimes rejected
0: the medical prescription of true sex and chose instead to live their own truths. So the book is absolutely fantastic, and I cannot wait to read more of your work. So what is next for you and where can we find you? Thanks so much. Um, my new book project um In this new project,
1: I'm trying to think about literary imaginings of gender crossings within the context of 19th century technologies that were beginning to realize the potential to modify gendered embodiment. So for example, the early elective reproductive surgeries like ovariotomy or surgeries on adults with intersex traits in 19th century France um, that were sometimes elective, that were sometimes desired by those patients. Um, We often think of the technology for changing sex is not really emerging until the 20th century, but recent scholarship in intersex studies has kind of uncovered the intertwined medical history of intersex and transgender in this country, um, especially by Hill Malatino and Sandra Eder, um, while new work in historical trans studies has drawn attention to precursors to trans identities in France. Um, And so my new book argues that 19th century technological innovations ensured that medicine would one day Be able to transform bodies to express identities for which no language yet existed. So it tries to trace the emergence of trans technology further back in the past, long before it was named, um, at a period of time during which binary sex was really under attack. Um, I've also recently co edited a volume of Yale French studies with Raisa Rexer on photography in the body in 19th century France, which is. French Studies' is first volume on photography. Um, it came out in 2021, and it brings together some essays by literary and art historians, comparatists, and the curators of France's preeminent photographic collections at the Bibliothèque Nationale and the Musée d'Orsay. Um, and I'm proud of the fact that the authorship of that volume is as diverse as the content of the essays, so they really push beyond gender, geographic, and, and cultural boundaries. So those, those were the sort of the, the two, two recent projects. That sounds
0: so exciting. We can't wait to read them. Well, again, Dr. Anne Linton, thank you so much for being with us today. We we can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Anne Linton for stopping by. Her book is Unmaking Sex out now from Cambridge University Press and you can find her on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Anne underscore Linton and thank you as always to my very favorite people our fantastic patrons on Patreon Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney Michelle Dunbar, James Finch Adriana Herrera Howard David Ingham Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeier, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History. We have also joined Mastodon at DirtySexyHistory at toot.whales, so stop by and say hello. I'll figure out the notifications one of these days. (laughs) You can also find us and our six years of post archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you guys next time.